Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Now, this chart that I have on the wall here is something that I put together, and I believe this is accurate. The, we've heard of the Passion Week, and it's, it's called a Passion Week because it's the week before Jesus would rise from the grave. We know from Sunday to Sunday or from Saturday to the following Sunday, that's really what is referred to as the Passion Week. The last seven or so days before Jesus would be falsely arrested and then ultimately uh, crucified and then on the third day rise again. And we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew and we're in the middle of this Passion Week. And on the screen, you can see this graphic. We're, we're basically on Wednesday, which is, uh, believe it or not, April 1st, the 12th of Nizan. And this is the, the time... Uh, that we're looking at right now, and these events that we're looking at uh, in chapter 22 all the way through chapter 25 occurred on this Wednesday, and so that is where we are located, and as we go through uh, Matthew, I want to show this to you just to kind of show you where we're at in the process, because there's a lot of things that happen sometimes uh, between days, and um, and so, you recall the, the message, the, the title of the message this morning that I had up there. And, and um, it was called, Two Things You Can Count On, Taxes and the Resurrection. <laughs> now, that is a play on words, isn't it? Because what is the old saying? You can count on two things in life, and what are they? Yes, death and taxes. But I'd like to put, uh, that's kind of pessimistic, isn't it? It's, you know, kind of a glass half empty type of person might say that. But I want to put a more positive spin on that and say that there are two things that we can be sure of in life. And certainly it is taxes. And there's a lot more, okay? I'm, I'm kind of being cheeky here a little bit. But uh, there's two things we can rely on, and that's taxes. But not death, but resurrection. Because the resurrection is an important part of uh, our life, because this is something that we're looking forward to. It could happen at any minute. And there's a lot to this teaching or this doctrine, if you will. And um, Jesus, now just a couple of days away from his crucifixion, he's being severely challenged by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And each step of the way, the Lord has anticipated their shenanigans. And he, brought, he brings them to silence by his responses. Um, have you ever tried to play chess with God when he knows the end from the beginning? I, I bring this up a lot because I'm a chess player and I like to play chess. But to play with somebody who, before you even move your pawn out two spaces, to have the other person say, you're already checkmated. And it's like, wait a minute, you haven't even moved a piece yet. Well, I know what you're going to do and this is how it's going to play out. And so just go ahead and move your pieces. And, but in about three minutes and 55 seconds, you're going to be checkmated. Right? And see, that's what it's like playing chess with God. He knows all things. He anticipates what these men are going to do. And by his responses, he puts them to silence and puts them to shame. Because these religious leaders, they were salivating at the chance to have something to say against Jesus. Something they could do to trip him up so that they might have something to accuse him by. Because they wanted to murder him. By this time... The nation of Israel had rejected Jesus Christ wholesale. And the religious leaders, the ones that should have known who Jesus was, what he was prophesied to do for hundreds and even a few thousand years in advance, they were the ones that should have known. And instead, they led the people after themselves rather than after their Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, God come in human flesh. But the Sadducees, the Herodians, as we're going to see this morning, and the Pharisees, they would each take their stab at Jesus, trying to trip him up. And ultimately, they're going to go away un, um, unsuccessful and empty-handed. But that will not stop them in their devilish plot to kill Christ. And let me suggest to you that Jesus is not a martyr. A martyr is someone who dies for the cause. Somebody who holds to something, and in the process of, of uh, realizing that or supporting that, they die. 
But Jesus was no martyr. And why do I say that? Because the Bible says, he said, before it even happened, I willingly lay down my life for my sheep. You know, these sheep that are on the hills here. He laid down, and the sheep that are out here, including myself, are your God's sheep too. He laid down his life willingly for us. And he knew exactly what was happening. He knew exactly what was coming because it had been prophesied again for hundreds and even a few thousand years in advance. So this was no surprise. But they will continue, and, and, and that's just the heart of man. Anything that's pure and holy, man will try to get a hold of and destroy. Because man, at his, at his, even at his best, he is evil. Because the Bible says that we were all born in sin. Meaning, we were born with a sin nature. And that's why the Bible says that we need to be born again. We need a new nature within us. Because my old nature is dead, and it's at hatred with God. It always has been. But until I confess my sin and receive Christ into my heart, the Spirit of God indwelling me permanently, as he's done for hopefully all of you, and it's there for the asking. You don't have to beg God to, to do this in your life, to be born again. But we need to be born again. We need this new nature within us. We need this new nature. And it's a blessing. My life has never been more exciting. And it's not been without trial and tribulation, as yours hasn't either. Oftentimes when we come to Christ for the very first time and we give our heart to him and our eyes are opened, we realize just how sinful we really were. But we also understand how much he has done to forgive us. And not only that, but the promises that he has made to secure us in heaven with him. I don't know about you, but that's the best deal going. To know that someone died in my place and it was almighty God who did it. Not any guru on the planet did it. No, Jesus, the son of God, God come in human flesh, the Logos, the Messiah, the savior of the world. He is the one who paid the price for you and me. So as a result of that, what do I do? I offer him my life because he paid for me and I'll never see a day in hell. How about you? <clears throat> yeah, it's worth clapping about. Because if you're a believer, you will never see eternal damnation. And it's not because of your works. Because when I first got saved, I thought I, you know, like I was worth it, Lord. You know, I mean, you saved me because you had things you wanted to do in my life. He's like, no, Rob, I saved you by my grace. It's everything that I have done that you've believed in. And I've even given you the faith to believe it. So I, I can't boast in anything. But I will boast in Jesus Christ who paid the price. Him I put my faith and my hope, my trust in, my eternal salvation. It, he's the one who secured it, and I believe it, and that settles it. How about you? And I hope that you do. And so that's what makes this gospel so special because we're going to see Jesus Christ, his role as, as the Messiah, just coming out in full force. And now that the nation had rejected him, Jesus is making his way like flint to the cross. There was nothing that was going to dissuade him from this one purpose, this one goal that he had been given, and that's to take the penalty of every human being that has ever sinned in the entirety of the world. Anyone who was born or anyone who will be born, he took the punishment the brunt of the judgment that you and I deserve, he took it upon himself once and for all. And for all. Even the worst people, and I was one of those worst people, he did it for me, he did it for you, he did it for Adolf Hitler, he did it for, um, you name it, whoever is really horrible in the world, he did it for them too. But they've got to come to faith in him. And it is exclusive, but it's open to Everybody. So what is your excuse for not coming to Christ today? There really is no excuse. Because if I had excuses and they were just empty, empty excuses. So the religious leaders now are going to come after him in full force. And we're going to see that Jesus is going to confound them on every level from the issue concerning taxes, which we're going to look at in just a moment, to their error in their understanding of the resurrection. And we're going to look at that too. But let's first look at chapter 22. Let's pick up in verse 15 and let's read down through verse 33. Notice with me, Jesus speaking again on this Wednesday... 
a couple days prior to his crucifixion. It says, Then the Pharisees, these religious leaders, they went and they plotted how they might entangle him in his talk, and they sent to him their disciples. Notice, they sent to Jesus their disciples. With the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, perceiving their wickedness, said, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Did Jesus say the word hypocrites? Yes, he did. Because it's true. They were hypocrites. He says, Show me the tax money. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, well, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and noticed they left him and went their way completely confounded. And the same day, again, this Wednesday that we're looking at, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children... His brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And then they give him this, they give Jesus this really horrible parable. It's ridiculous. And as we read it, you're going to be going, I can't believe they had the, the guts to be so ridiculous. But here it is, verse 25. So they say to him, Now there were, th- there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, he left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh died. Last of all, the woman died also. My goodness, the black widow finally dies after seven men. She killed them all. They probably deserved it, by the way. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus catches them. And and again, you can't hoodwink God. He's always several moves ahead of you. In fact, infinitely number of moves ahead of you. And here they try, though, to confound the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's go back to verse 15 to look at some things here. Notice, it says that the Pharisees went and they plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. In the parallel account of this, it says that they, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 20, it says that they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. And he sent to them their disciples. They sent to him, the Pharisees, they sent to him, to Jesus, their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're true and teach the way of God in truth. We know that you don't care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. So these disciples that the Pharisees sent, they were the Pharisees' own disciples. And these men should have been disciples of Jesus. The Pharisees should have been pointing to Jesus like John the Baptist was. John the Baptist was pointing to his cousin, saying, this is the Messiah, Yes, God come in human flesh, the Savior of the world. This is him. These men should have done the same thing. But instead, they send their disciples. So now we have Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees' disciples. And it's an unfortunate thing when you're not a disciple of Jesus, but the disciple of someone else, some other man. And the Herodians, who are these people? These are... Uh, political activists who supported Herod, Herod Antipas, who was on the throne at the time. And they were normally enemies of the Pharisees 
because the Pharisees ardently supported Israel against Rome. They didn't want Rome occupying their land. But mutual hatred often brings, makes strange bedfellows, doesn't it? So now the Pharisees who hated Jesus, the Herodians hated the Pharisees, but they both hated Jesus more, so they grouped together. And it's so often the case, isn't it, that opposing groups coming together against a greater enemy. We see it all the time throughout history, even to our current day. And it's an unusual alignment. Um, This unusual alignment of forces has been repeated so many times. But notice their flattery. They walk up to Jesus, Teacher, we know that you're true. And you can almost hear the popcorn and the butter, the butter just oozing over the, you know, and they're just buttering Jesus up. Lord, we know that you're true, and you teach the true ways of God. In truth, nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. So whenever you hear this kind of flattery, you know you're being set up. And certainly Jesus knew what they were up to. And he was beating them at their game. A note here for critical thinkers. Critical thinking is not something that's really taught in schools today. But here's a a, a note for critical thinkers. Be careful when people are trying to trick you concerning something they say because they will use truth to lure you into their web. A little truth mixed with some lies. And the old adage, the devil's in the details, right? And so let's look at this first statement. Teacher, we know that you are true and you teach the way of God in truth. There's nothing wrong with this statement. It's true. But the next phrase, nor do you regard... Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. And this is the clinch phrase. Because by flattering him, in the first phrase, they are baiting him, trying to get him to reject paying the tax to to a government that all the Jews despised. And so now they're trying to bait him. And so be careful to separate the truth from the false and and correct what is false. Because even though a portion may be true, be sure to correct the error in the part that is false before agreeing or disagreeing with any statement that's brought to you. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? When, you're, when you're, people are trying to get you, that what they'll do is they'll tell you some truth and then they'll get you, they'll put in something else and you're compelled to say, yes, that's true. When only parts of those statements are true, the others are false. And that's what we have to be really careful with. And this is what Jesus certainly understood. And so they said, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, according to John Walvoord, a a very well-renowned Bible teacher, pastor, scholar, he said the tax that's being referred to here was a poll tax. It was a small tax levied on women aged 12 to 65 and men aged 14 to 65. It was a relatively small tax as the Romans also exacted a 10% tax on grain and a 20% tax on wine and fruit, as well as other taxes for road and bridge improvements. So there's a lot of taxes being taken. And do you feel the same way today? Do you feel like you're being taxed a lot? You do. So now their intention, you can see what they're doing. They're trying to get Jesus to go against Rome, and he's also going to pit them pit Jesus against the the Jews who hate Rome and don't want to pay taxes to Rome. And so whatever choice he chooses here, he's going to be in deep trouble. And of course, the Lord knows their motives. It would seem that they had him trapped. But oftentimes, there's another answer. Here's another critical thinking tip. When somebody gives you only two options... Don't always take the two options because sometimes there's a third option that they're not giving you and you take that one. And that's what Jesus did and, they, and, he, and he confounded them. But Jesus perceived their wickedness, verse 18, notice, and said, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Why do you test me? This Greek word test is pyrodso and it means to tempt or entice or to scrutinize or to put on trial. A word to the wise, don't put God on trial. (laughs) Don't attempt to be his judge. He is your judge. 
That's the way it is. He makes the rules. And let me tell you something. His ways are so good. You never have to worry about the Lord making something uh, to have you follow that's going to be detrimental to you. No, everything he does is to promote life and to promote eternity with him. And that means turning away from our sin included. But sometimes we don't want to turn away from our sin, do we? We like our sin, thank you very much, and we're going to live with that sin, and you have no right to tell me what to do. And Jesus says, I don't have the right. Actually, he does have the right, but he will let you make your decision. And you're going to live with that decision for eternity. And that's the truth. But his ways are life and life everlasting. He wants, to, he wants to love you. And perfect love does that, doesn't it? When you see your child going out on their big wheel into the 490 traffic, what do you do? You discipline your child. You don't want them to die. Well, Jesus does the same things. He tells us the things that we need to stay away from. And we can, we can say, well, I'm going to be my own man and I'm going to do what I want. And, and the Lord will let you have your way if you so choose. But you will live a life full of regret and remorse, and your life will be shambles completely. And it's happened in my life, it's happened in all of our lives. At some point, you're, you're looking at the shipwreck in the, in the mirror every morning, and you're like, oh God, what did I do? And God is speaking by his Holy Spirit, saying, well, you've rejected everything I'm telling you. You've rejected me. You've rejected all the things that are in my word. And so what is left but trial and anguish and pain and sorrow and judgment Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's the best thing going. Many of us in this room have made that decision, but there are some who haven't. Make the decision for Christ. He's the only one who loves you perfectly. No one else does. The world could care less about you, but there's one, the creator of the universe. His love and his, his love for me is all I care about. If I'm accepted by him, that's good enough for me. People can reject me, and they do. But his love and his acceptance is what I long for. And I have his acceptance, not because I'm good, but because I serve a good God, and I believe in his only sacrifice for sins, Jesus Christ. So don't put God on trial. Don't, make, don't be the judge of him. He is the one who makes the rules. And again, God wants you to live and he knows what's best. So Jesus said, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And this is what a denarius at that time looked like. It's a coin of Tiberius Caesar who reigned from about 14 to 37 AD. And the, the inscription reads, you can't read it because uh, it's, it's, the coin's not in that great a shape. But it says, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. The divine Augustus. And this was the coin, likely, that they brought to Jesus and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things that are God's to God's. I mean, Caesar, Rome, they minted this coin with, their, with the silver. It belongs you know, to them. They, they can do whatever they want with it. Render therefore to them what belongs to them and render therefore to God what belongs to God's. And when they heard these words, they marveled and they left him and they went their way. I love what it says in Luke's account. It gives a different twist to this. In Luke 20, verse 26, it says, but they could not catch him. They tried, try as they might, they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and they kept silent. Now, taxes, how many of you like to pay taxes? Raise your hand really high and wide if you like to pay taxes. Okay, only one person in the front row. Nice going, Madeline, that's all right. I... She can take it. She's good. Nobody likes to pay taxes, right? We don't. We don't like to pay taxes. One commentator had this to say, and I think he hit it right on the nose. He says, Our Lord said that there are obligations we have and duties we ought to perform in the sphere of both the secular and the sacred life. But let me suggest to you something even further, that everything to you as a Christian is sacred. We don't have this secular life and this Christian life. No, the sacred life, you, you being a Christian, encompasses it all. But I understand what they're saying here. We live in two different, we have two different citizenships, don't we? We live on this earth and we also, our citizenship is also in heaven. Paul tells us that, right? So 
Our, ob- our, our Lord said that there are obligations that we have and duties we ought to perform in the sphere of both secular and sacred life. And our duties in one do not exclude our duties in the other. So we have a dual citizenship. One on the earth, one in heaven. And we need to be obedient and faithful to both. So they were trying to tell Jesus and encourage him to go against Rome. But it's the Roman money that was uh, used to prepare and, and repair the roads. It was used for many other things. And, and some of it was really decent. But there were a, a majority, or, or I don't know what the percentage was, but there was a lot that they were doing with that money that wasn't right. Just as in our own government. There are things that happen. We, you, know, you drive down 441 and you're thankful that they, find, you know, that they pave it when it needs it, right? And that's your tax dollars at work. And many other such things. But we also know that all of our taxes aren't always going to the things that we want. And maybe even the things you didn't vote for. But that's a whole other topic. I won't go there. So we have dual citizenship. And even in the New Testament, this seems to bear itself out. Because what did Paul say to the Romans? And this is something really important for us to take a look at. I remember a, a, a young man who was a Christian. And he decided he wasn't going to pay taxes anymore. And, uh, and he got in a lot of trouble for doing it. Jesus paid taxes. So pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. <laughs> yeah. Let's read what it says in Romans 13, because Paul even bears this out. He says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Yes, even if they're evil, be subject to them. You don't have to agree with them. Be subject to them, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that, are, are, that exist are appointed by God. Yes, even in the trickery and the cafundery, uh, if, if that's a word, I just made it up. Uh, whatever it is, regardless... God is in control of everything. He allows certain things to happen that aren't fair. This happens. But the authorities that are exist right now are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Under normal circumstances, this is true. Governments were made to slow down the spread of sin. Without government, either us being governed by God or even having government, including our police officers, if, if we were void of all that, it would be like the shootout at the OK Corral. It would be a mess. There has to be order. And you pay for that order because of sinful man. We pay for that order. And most of the time, rulers are not a terror to good things. Even if they're doing evil things. But we have laws. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Well, do what is good and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, even if he doesn't realize it. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Did you hear that? That means our, our police force, our... Army and the Navy, Air Force, Marines, all of these entities that are to protect us and for them to protect you civilly and federally, those things are there by God. And he's allowed them to protect you, providing they do it, right? He is God's minister for you, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, we, you must also be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. <laughs> you had to say it, Paul. I'm tearing that part out of my Bible. <laughs> For this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually on this very thing. So render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So what's the moral of the story? Jesus paid taxes, and so you ought to as well. Don't cheat on your taxes. Be honorable in all that you do. Yes, I said that from a church pulpit. Pay your taxes, because God did. And he owns everything, and Jesus paid taxes. 
Now, as we get into this next section in chapter 20, or verse 23, excuse me, there's some things about the Sadducees that I need to share with you because they were a unique group of people. The Sadducees were the liberal group in the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 or 71 men made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees were the, uh, they would really agree with what we believe as far as the word of God and everything is concerned. They were the more conservative ones. The Sadducees were the ultra-rich and they were the very liberal uh, part of the Sanhedrin. And we see a very similar thing even in our own government today, you know, conservative and liberal. And the Sadducees were of that kind. They did not believe in the resurrection, which leads you to believe that the things that they were sharing with Jesus, trying to trip him up, was really ludicrous because they didn't really believe in the resurrection. And, then, and yet they're asking Jesus, you know, this ridiculous story of this woman who murdered all seven. I mean, she really didn't murder them. It's just convenient to think like that. Um, all seven of her husbands die. And then in the resurrection, who's going to be your husband? And the Lord's like, you guys are out to lunch. Number one, you don't believe that. But number two, you don't even know the, you don't even know the scriptures and the power of God. So the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. In Acts 23, I would encourage you to read Acts 23. Paul uses their lack of belief in the resurrection to put them at odds with the Pharisees who did believe in the resurrection. And another thing they didn't believe is in angels or the supernatural. They didn't believe in angelic beings or the supernatural. And they only held to the first five books of Moses. And what are the first five books of Moses? Genesis. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? So they only held to those books, the Sadducees. And this is why they were sad, you see? Had to do it, I'm sorry. Everybody does it, and I, I can't help myself. But notice, the same day, it says, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if any man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife, raise up offspring to his brother. And then, and then they lay on, this, on him this really lame story. And this is really, really hyper lame. Hyper lame. There were seven brothers. The first died. After he had married and had no offspring, left his wife to his brother, and likewise the second also, and the third, even to the seventh, last of all, the woman died also. My goodness. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had had her. And again, very foolish, very ridiculous. But on a side note, there is provision in the Old Testament and this is true. If a, if a, if a man had a, a wife and uh, the husband died and they had no children and the woman was a widow, uh, the man's brothers would go in unto his wife and take her unto his own. The next in line of the brothers would take her and have relations with her and raise up children for his brother's name. And it's called the Leverite marriage is what it's called. And it's recorded for us in Deuteronomy chapter 25. We're not going to read the whole thing, but that's basically what um, it, it spoke of, this Leverite marriage where um, exactly what I described would happen. And this is, um, if you've read the book of Ruth, this is exactly what happened to Ruth, right? Ruth comes back, her husband dies, and the next in line to marry her and take that responsibility of the Leverite and to take her and to raise up children for her deceased husband. Remember, the, the, the first guy didn't want anything to do with her because she was a Gentile. Ruth was a Moabitist. She was a Gentile. So this other Jew did not want anything to do with Ruth. But Boaz, who was a descendant of David, he says, I'll take her. And he takes that responsibility because he was a next of kin to take her. And so he did this very same thing. But that's really not the point of the whole story, other than to say, and here's just a, a wonderful little grace nugget in the Bible. I love this. Because Ruth, who was a Moabitess, a Gentile, would be the great grandmother of King David. And then King David would ultimately, through a series of relationships and his family line, through his line specifically, unbroken line, will come Jesus Christ. Through the line of Judah, prophesied back in Genesis 49 verse 10, 
You know, Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16 talks about all this. But notice in verse 29, So Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And they were the experts. They should have known this. And see, it is possible to have a lot of knowledge about the Bible and not really know the scriptures and not know the God of the scriptures. It's not enough just to fill your head with knowledge, right? Because we can fill our heads with all kinds of knowledge, but if we don't have the Spirit of God in us, we can hurt people with the Word of God. It happens all the time. Many of you have been hurt by the Word of God that somebody has used because they knew it up here, but they didn't have the heart of God behind it. And both are really critical. Both are very necessary. And notice Jesus says, For in the resurrection, you guys are mistaken, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So let's talk about in the resurrection. We've talked a lot about this doctrine of the resurrection, and I want to go over it again today because I think over time you're going to have a handle on this fairly well because of how often it comes up. And it's important to understand what the resurrection is and what it isn't. But when Jesus says, in the resurrection, he is referring to a time that was future to when he spoke it, and it's also yet future to us today. The resurrection. He's referring to a time yet that begins at the rapture of the church, which could happen at any time. And then it finally comes to fruition in the beginning of the millennial reign or the thousand year reign of Christ. So when you think of the resurrection, we need to understand that the resurrection has three phases to it. Three phases to the resurrection. And Paul was given this revelation by Jesus himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, it says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits. Notice that. Jesus Christ, resurrected, given a brand new, immortal, celestial body, which is what happened when he rose from the grave. He was the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. And here it is, verse 23. But each one in his own order. Notice now Paul gives us the order of this, the idea of the resurrection. These three phases, if you will. He says, Christ the firstfruits. And then afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. So if this be the case, then we can understand, based on the scripture, this three phase, three phases of resurrection. And what were they? Let's just look at them really quickly here. The first phase is what we see uh, right here on this chart, where this is the cross when Jesus was crucified. Three days later, Jesus was resurrected bodily, a different body than when, than when he was born into, right? That is, he is the first fruits, meaning it was the very first time that that had happened in, in that way. There are other people who are, are resurrected, but they were still in their same bodies. I don't want to get into all that right now, but suffice it to say, he was the first fruits, and then the second phase, and we, we're going to see this as we get into Matthew 28, but the second phase of the resurrection is what we call the rapture of the church. And it's this time right here after the church age. You and I live in this time right now. And when that time, when this church age is over, the Bible says that God is going to, in fact, let's just read it here. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. And you've heard me read this, but I'm going to read it to you again. Paul writing to them, he says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or who have already died in Jesus. And notice what he says in verse 15. He doesn't give his opinion. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. That's very important to know here. This is not Paul's opinion. This we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are already died in Christ, who had already died in faith. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, those who have died from this moment in the past, who have died in Christ, will be raised incorruptible. They will receive a resurrection body, a celestial body, very different from the one that we have. That This body will be able to endure eternity and it won't get sick. You won't have to get your leg and your hips replaced and your knee replaced. No, you're all good at this point, right? And the dead in Christ will rise first. And notice what Paul says. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. We'll be caught up together with them. Notice they're going to go first. And it's going to happen just like that. They're going to go up. We're going to go up that are alive and remain in a twinkling of an eye, he tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's going to happen just like that. But in the right order. The first phase, Christ. The second phase, the rapture of the church. And that could happen at any moment. But the word caught up is the Greek word harpazo. And you know what it means? It means to snatch violently up off the earth. Quickly. It's going to happen so quick. Don't be afraid of it. Don't, you're not going to get hurt. It's not like the zero gravity is going to go to your head and you're going to pass out. No, you're going to be given an, a new body instantly and gone. That's the way it's going to happen. And for those of you who are new here today, you've heard of the term rapture right? Do you know the word rapture is not in the Bible? The concept is all over the Bible. Well, not all over, in a few places, but the word rapture comes from this word harpazo. Uh, Around the fourth century AD, a gentleman by the name of Jerome, he translated the Greek and the Hebrew scriptures into Latin, called the Latin Vulgate. If you've been to the Catholic Church, sometimes they read from the Latin Vulgate. Well, this verse in Latin, this word caught up, in the Greek it means harpazo, to be snatched up. In Latin, it's rapiamir or rapio. It means the same thing, to snatch up violently off the earth. Quickly is the idea. That's where we get our word rapture from. So you won't find it in the Bible, but here you find it. And here you also see it in 1 Corinthians. So that's the second phase of this resurrection that these guys are denying. And the third phase is this right here. After the church age, after the church is raptured, notice what uh, Paul says. He says, Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Notice that, in the clouds. Jesus doesn't come down to earth at this point. He meets us in the clouds and that process of the dead in Christ and then we who are alive and remain being transformed quickly and taken up to meet him in the clouds. And it says, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord and then comfort one another with these things. That's a great comfort to me. Now would be a good time. (laughs) Can anybody say amen to that? I would welcome that. Right now it would be fine, Lord. I wish I had an iPhone app. I I say this all the time, but it's true. I I wish it was just a big red button and I could just go, now, rapture, now. And I'd just be beamed up. But this is true. This is not science fiction. It sounds science fiction. Star Trek, you know, they did their thing with beam me up Scotty, but this is the real deal. The real deal. But this third resurrection, this third phase, I should say, is, is recorded for us in a couple of passages. In Daniel, in the Old Testament, and in Revelation. For the Old Testament saints, those who died in faith in God, they weren't part of the church, and I won't get into all this right now, but they, they, they died in faith looking forward to the Messiah. They too will be resurrected after this tribulation period that's going to happen on the earth. And then when Jesus comes back to the earth in his second coming, before he begins this millennium or the thousand year reign of Christ, at that moment, sometime in that time period, in the very beginning, the Old Testament saints will be they will be resurrected as well as those believers who died in the tribulation period. They will all be resurrected at the same time. And these are the verses that you need to know about. So let me just read them to you. In Daniel, Daniel's a Jew. He's in Babylon. What does it tell him? What does the, the angel tell them? In Daniel 12, and just look at the two verses. It says, At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, And there will be a time of trouble. And that ought to 
ring a bell with you, a time of trouble. There will be, and, and, and if you look in your Bibles, if you've got a new King James Version Bible, it'll actually say the time of the end, or, or the last prophecy, or, or something along those lines, end time prophecy. It'll actually say that. Because now the angel is speaking to Daniel, a Jew. At that time, Michael shall stand up the great prince who stands over, watch over the sons of your people, and there will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered. And so this is speaking of this great tribulation period. There's going to be a time of great trouble. We call it Daniel's 70th week. Uh, some people call it Jacob's trouble. And everyone who is found written in the book the book of life, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. And the word sleep, it's speaking of people who have already died. Okay, so even the Old Testament saints, and this is this third phase of the resurrection that these Sadducees were rejecting. But it's good for us to know. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And there's a lot to this that I don't want to get bogged down into, but look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Let me just read it to you. But it's speaking of these tribulation saints, these individuals who are martyred and killed during this tribulation period after the church has been removed from the earth. It's going to be a terrible time, folks. And it's coming in the future. And there's a lot. We've already talked about that. But notice in Revelation 20, verse 4, John writing, he says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. So these are people who died during that tribulation period, that seven-year period that's coming upon the earth, yet future. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And notice, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, wait a minute. They were beheaded, right? Yes, they were beheaded and they, they were killed. But now they're going to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. So what has to happen? Resurrection. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And so we see these three phases. Christ, the first fruits. We see the rapture of the church, the second wave or the second phase and then the third phase is right there at the end of the tribulation period the very beginning of the millennium and so notice in verse 30 going back there again says for in the resurrection they neither jesus speaking to them he says for in the resurrection and now you know what we're talking about now right for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels of god in heaven so the angels in heaven are not given in marriage either they're not up there married. And though we know, I believe we will know each other in heaven, our relationships will be very different than they are here on earth. My wife and I, we're married here on this earth, but when we are raptured or until death takes us and we're raptured, uh, you know, the dead in Christ rise, that could be us, you know, I don't know, whenever the Lord does that. But we, our relationship is going to be different in heaven. We're going to be married to Jesus. But don't get all upset going, well, I love my wife. Or I love my husband. Well, guess what? Your love is going to be perfected in heaven. You're going to love them even much more. But the whole arrangement's going to change. Don't worry about it now because it sounds a little unsettling. It's okay to love them. And you're going to love them in heaven, but it's going to be different because we're all, the bride of Christ is going to be married to our Savior, the one who died for us. We won't be married together, but we'll look at each other differently and we'll see each other. There'll be a, we'll understand who you are and have respect and it'll be a perfect love. Even better than it is now, right? That's pretty cool, I think. And if you look in Luke's gospel, I mean, we're not going to go here for the sake of time, but in Luke's gospel, chapter 16, it talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And remember, this is a, um, 
Jesus is, is telling this, and I, I don't believe this is a parable. I believe these were two real people. This man named Lazarus. Not the Lazarus that he rose to life, but um, perhaps a different Lazarus. And there was a rich man. And Jesus is and giving us an idea of what heaven and hell is really like. Because one man, the beggar, he dies and he goes into Abraham's bosom, which is a Jewish way of saying he went to heaven. His body's in the earth, but he went to heaven. His soul and his spirit went to heaven. But the rich man, who could care less about the beggar, he went to hell. He went to Hades. And remember, there was this great gulf in between, and evidently they were able to communicate to one another. And the man in hell was saying, go tell my brothers, Father Abraham. Go tell my brothers. You know, I don't want them to come here. And so there's an understanding. I mean, if we, if we take this literally, they understood people that they had left behind, even in that eternal abode. There wasn't an acknowledgement, an understanding of people still on the earth. And they even knew their names. It's something to file away. But notice that Jesus in this passage of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus said um, Abraham said to him you know, to this man who was in hell, the man says, go tell my brothers to not come here and, and to follow the, the law and, you know, listen to God. And then verse 29, it says, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And did anybody, did the, the Pharisees, when they were alive, after Jesus rose from the dead, were there, were there a great mass of people saying, oh, we believe in him now? No, it didn't happen. So even if one rises from the dead, you're not going to change the heart of, an, of a man or a woman. That has to be something they've got to willingly accept. And in this, Jesus affirmed the presence of angels. <laughs> Verse 31, back in our text. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read... What was spoken by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the living, God of the, excuse me, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Underline that phrase that Jesus said, because you can take it literally as it is. Notice that when Jesus was saying this concerning the resurrection of the dead, that he was referring to passages in the Old Testament. Because the people at that time, they didn't have the New Testament. It hadn't been written yet. So when Jesus says, have you not read, what is he referring to? The Old Testament. Because the, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. All they had was the Old. So if this is so, then what passage is Jesus referring to? And it, it doesn't, it's not hard to figure it out. And because the Sadducees, remember, they only held to the first five books of Moses, where does Jesus take them? He takes them right to Exodus. <laughs> what does it say in Exodus? Remember, this is when uh, Moses was standing before the burning bush, right? Before he went and rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt. And then he said, uh, the, the Lord, speaking out of the fiery bush, says, Do not draw near this place, Moses. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am. Notice, not I was. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, prior to this, just think uh, chronologically here for a second. When he's standing before God at this burning bush, had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, had they already passed away? Yeah, for several years, quite a few years. They had already passed on. So God is telling them from one of the books that they held to, Exodus, he's proving it to them. Did God say, The God of Isaac, I, I am the God? Or did he say, I was the God? He said, I am. Meaning, currently, I'm, I'm the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're with me now, God says to Moses. They're not dead. They're very much alive in my presence. 
And one day they will be resurrected. Remember in that third wave that we talked about, those Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the beginning of that thousand-year reign of Christ, which we look forward to. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were in the presence, were in the presence of God when he spoke to this. Now, but what about uh, other Old Testament passages that speak of the resurrection? Let's just go through a few of them really quickly. These are the things that they rejected. Now, Jesus just took them to task on one in the books that they were holding to, the five books of Moses. But there were other Old Testament scriptures speaking of the resurrection that I'm speaking to you now of. What happened in Psalm 16? Remember, David, the psalmist, writing this psalm a thousand years before Jesus was born, says, therefore, verse 9 Uh, him speaking, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol or in the grave or in some translations in, in, in hell, which Sheol has been translated hell even though Jesus didn't go to hell. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life and in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. David was speaking of the resurrection. He knew that when he died, he wouldn't spend, um, and he's really speaking of Jesus here, because Jesus, when he was in the grave, and this is a prophecy of Christ's res- or crucifixion and resurrection, because when Jesus died, he was in the grave for how many days? Three days, and then what happened? He rose again. He didn't see corruption. A thousand years before Jesus was crucified, this was prophesied by David. An Old Testament prophet as well. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8 and 9, speaking uh, of the millennium, still future to us, it says this in verse 8, we will swallow up death forever. Here are the scriptures. I'm sorry, I should have put that up for you. Uh, We will swallow up, he will swallow up death forever, speaking of God, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken and And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. He will swallow up death forever because of the resurrection. You can't say you swallow up death if death has defeated you. Only when death has been overcome can it be swallowed up. Do you follow me? Isaiah 26, 19, it says, Your dead men shall live together with my dead body. They shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Pretty interesting. In the Old Testament, speaking of the resurrection, let me just go to uh, this one here. Hosea 13, verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave, God says. The power of the grave is death. But to ransom them from the power of grave, grave means resurrection. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. God is going to overrule death, and he has already. And we already looked at Daniel chapter 12. Notice in verse 33, in the last verse here. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, he didn't give them all the ones that I gave you. He, just, he was talking to the Sadducees. So they're like, you guys only believe in the first five books? Well, I'm going to hit you right there. And one of those books, I'm going to tell you, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are alive with me. But there are, there are other scriptures as well. So I want to encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, and you're born again, you will take part in this resurrection. See, Jesus has already died and crucified, and he rose again, the first fruits. Now that second phase, and let me just go back to that uh, chart that I had up here. You are going to take place in that second one. And that can happen at any time. And if that frightens you, 
Maybe it's because you have some unfinished business yet to do with the Lord. Maybe you're not born again. Because the fear of being taken from this earth and being transformed can be unsettling for some people. I'm not afraid of that. I'm waiting and hoping for that. That's why they call it the blessed hope. Because Jesus said he's going to do it. And it could happen. There's nothing that we know of that needs to happen before that event occurs. And this is the thing that the Sadducees, they were wrestling with Jesus about. And it's a doctrine that we need to understand because it can happen at any moment for us. And I'm looking forward to that. But maybe you're not this morning. Maybe you're not ready. And you know what? It's okay to be honest because you know what? The Lord is such a gentleman. He knows your life. He knows what you're going through right now. And believe me, you want to go with him when he calls, when the trump of God sounds and the dead in Christ rise. And if we are alive, and I hope it's sometime this week, even in the next few minutes would be nice. Yes, I want to escape this planet. Raise your hand if you want to escape. (laughs) Anybody want to stay here and go, man, I just love this place. It's just so full of order and peace. No, I want to get out of here. But in his time, and until then, I want to be faithful to share the truth and love, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone I know. Because listen, the train is leaving the station, and there's going to be people on that train, and you want all your friends and your relatives, yourselves included, to be on that train when it leaves port. You don't want to be left behind. Is there hope for you afterwards? Yes, but it's going to be very, very, extremely difficult. And if you want to talk about it, I'm willing to talk to you about it. It's going to be very difficult. But now they call this the age of grace. The age of grace. The age of unmerited favor. A favor that I can't earn. I can't do enough good things to earn it. I simply believe and accept it. And that is the greatest thing we can do, family. Is to simply believe what Jesus said. And receive him as Lord and Savior. And when he comes, he's going to come and he's going to take you. And it says, forever we will be with the Lord while all hell is breaking out on the earth in that great tribulation period, we are going to be with him. Why? Because for God has not appointed us to wrath, his wrath. And the tribulation period is his wrath upon the earth. He has not appointed us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That's literally what it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, verbatim. And see, that's what we have to look forward to. Do you want to be there? If you're a believer, you're, you're going to be there no matter what, even with all of your mess-ups, right? Even when you mess up, even when you make mistakes and you confess them and you're forgiven, God will forgive you. But you have to be in Christ. You have to receive him and believe what he did for you. There's no other way to the Father except through Jesus. What did Jesus say in John 14, verse 6? He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes unto the Father except through me. Not through Buddha, not through Allah, not through Joseph Smith or Charles Taze Russell, not through anybody else, through Christ, and it's open to everyone. What's your decision this morning? Because I know that there are some here who haven't made that decision. Make the decision today. Make it right now. Do you know you don't need to, nobody needs to embarrass you and have you come up. Right now in the privacy of your own heart. It's very simple. Just say, Lord, I'm finished. (laughs) I'm finished with trying to, I'm making a mess of everything. I've, I've screwed up everything. And I've hurt people. I'm hurting myself, I'm addicted to this, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, nobody knows about it, my life is a complete train wreck. Lord, I give it to you, will you accept me? And he's like, yes, you come to me. Is it going to be easy? Probably not. Are you going to feel the weight of your sin lifted off of you, like unlike ever before? Absolutely. Is your life going to be challenged after that? Yes, it will be. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to anybody and say, come to Christ and it's pie in the sky. Everything will be better. All your bank accounts will get straightened out. No, actually, when you come to Christ, the battle is going to be on. But you're on the winning side because he is the victor. 
Have you read Revelation 19, verse 11? When Christ comes back to the earth, he is the victor. He always will be the victor. He's almighty God. So make that decision today. Make the decision today. And if you do want to pray afterwards, just come on up. You know, there'll be a couple of guys up here. Just come on up. We'd love to pray with you. You don't need us. You can pray with somebody else. We, we don't have any special thing. Pray with somebody. Pray with us. We'd love to pray with you. But don't leave this building until you have given your heart to Jesus Christ. Because we do not know the day or the hour. And I have to say this. Do you remember back in 2015? I've said this before and I'll use it again because it's so perfect. There were five young ladies who just graduated from Fairport High School in 2015. And they went on a trip. They had just graduated. They had college ahead of them, stars in their eyes, beautiful young ladies. They went on a trip together in a van to the Finger Lakes, somewhere in in one of the Finger Lakes. And they crossed over by by accident. Who cares what the cause was? But they were in a horrible head-on collision. The, The whole van exploded into flames and all five of the girls died. And see, they woke up that morning. And see, you and I wake up every morning with the assurance that we've got plenty of time left. You may be young. You may be only 30, 40, 50, 60. Oh, I've got at least 20 years ahead of me. Hey, listen, you don't know that. Those girls were 18, 17 and 18 years old. They had no idea when they woke up that morning that that was the day. And see, that's why God pleads with us. That's why he's pleading with you now. Do not waste this opportunity. I'm not going to manipulate anything. Just, believe, just trust the Lord. And whether you do it now, or whether you tonight get alone with the Lord and give it up. Give it up. I remember the day I gave it up. Give it up. Give up your life to him and he will replace it with a life that has purpose. Not void of difficulties and trials, but it will be glorious and wonderful and you will have an assurance of salvation that nobody can take away from you. And it's a gift that God gives to you. He gives you that gift. It's a precious gift. Salvation is the greatest gift I've ever received. And ever you've received, right? So let's stand together, and I'm just going to pray, but at the end, if you want to receive Christ, you want to talk about this, come and talk to me, come and talk to someone up here. Okay, we're here for you. Lord, we just come before you, and I thank you for this um, opportunity, Lord, just to, to share the greatest message that ever could be. Lord, this message is the greatest message, because it's a message that came from you. The message of the gospel is originated from you. You're the one who created it. You're the one who made it possible. And Lord, I pray this morning for anyone here or with an earshot of this message, Lord, that they would give their heart to you, Lord, for they, we do not know they are the hour when our last moment of, on earth is. And Lord, we need to know you, Jesus. And so I pray that you would encourage our hearts and for those who are on the fence, Lord, that you would just encourage and love them right into your kingdom. It's really so sweet and wonderful. Lord, we thank you for this time. Bless my brothers and sisters, Lord, and thank you for what you've done and what you're doing and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. God bless you.